0: it's sabina and i'm anna
1: welcome to sick transit gloria it's good to have you have you with us thanks for listening mom and dad hi (laughs) anna what's on your mind um a lot's on my mind one of the things on my mind is um archives yeah yeah do you you want to talk about it oh my gosh i just find them really fascinating like as these repositories for human history full of different stories and things and I don't know. I think they're really neat. Okay.
0: (laughs) Cool. I mean, I agree. I think archives can be interesting. You just have to know how they work and know what you're looking for.
1: That's true. That's very true. But I I just find them really fascinating in kind of a conceptual way as well. Like what stories we choose to tell and how we choose to tell them. And then just like history in general, like how we think about it. But anyway, I've been thinking about this a lot like a lot, it has to do with my made up major in Gallatin. And so that is one of the reasons
0: why I thought we should reach out to the New York Historical Society for an episode. And so we went, we pulled up to the New York Historical Society Mm -hmm. and met Mike Thornton who was incredible to talk to.
2: Hi, I'm Mike Thornton. I'm the Associate Curator of Material Culture here at the New York Historical Society.
1: So we get to the Historical Society, and the communications director, who we emailed with a lot, uh, Mary Beth, met us and brought us in. Hello.
0: Hello. Hello. You're all signed in? Yes. yes. Okay, great. Follow me. Uh, so when we walked in, there were quite a few displays. Um, Mary Beth brought us through this gorgeous room of Tiffany lamps, which I was my personal favorite. Um, and a striking set of Thomas Cole paintings, five of them, called The Course of Empire. And they had just taken down their very popular Harry Potter exhibition. Which we were sad to have missed.
1: But then Mary Beth took us back to a hallway which had some of the most special and noteworthy artifacts in their whole collection.
0: So, Anna, talking about artifacts, talking about Tiffany lamps, what is the New York Historical Society?
1: Well, luckily, Mike explained this to us as soon as we got there.
2: We're a repository of the memory of the city and how the the citizens of the city have experienced great national events. The New York Historical Society is the city's oldest museum and among the oldest in the United States. Um, We are founded in 1804. And just to put that into a little bit of historical context, um, that's the same year that... uh, Barbary pirates were still attacking American shipping in the Mediterranean. It was the same year that Lewis and Clark uh, had just settled into their winter encampment at Fort Mandan. And it was a a moment in time when the United States was kind of, they'd had enough distance between uh, the events of the American Revolution that they realized that, hey, we really are on the road to being a great republic and great republics need great public institutions. And so our founder John. Pintard and his associates, which included Governor Morris, uh, the mayor of uh, New York uh, at the time, got together and decided to found a historical institution that would, and I'm going to quote, this is from their public address, and uh, even though it's 200 plus years old, I think it still holds true, their mission was essentially to rescue from the dust and obscurity of private repositories such important documents as are liable to be lost or destroyed by the indifference or neglect of those whose hands they may have fallen, will be the primary object of our attention, for without the aid of historic records and authentic documents, history will be nothing more than a well-combined series of ingenious conjectures and amusing fables."
1: So I really loved this quote that Mike read to us Um, because what's so cool to me is that we can just have like a thing, like an object, but embodied within it, there can be some kind of a story, some kind of a history. And there were a bunch of guys in the 1800s who were like, objects do tell stories, so we should start collecting them. And so... At the New York Historical Society, they have 200 plus years worth of objects that have stories attached to them. And we were in a room full of them, which I just
2: found fascinating. This gallery, the North Run, as we call it in-house, which is really our permanent collection of objects, exploring different aspects of the collection from anywhere from looking at uh, the great American uh, furniture maker, Duncan Fife and his work in the city to great pieces from our sculpture collection. Two, behind you is this very unusual giant flag. This is a special banner made by the Society of Pewterers who were going to march in a giant parade to celebrate the ratification of the Constitution. It's one of our crown jewels. Very, very rare. Only, uh, only There's only one other flag that's known to survive from these sort of celebratory... Uh, marches. So our collection goes really back to the nation's founding. I mean, in fact, right behind me is a banister rail from Federal Hall. And behind it literally is where Washington took the oath of office to be president of the United States.
1: Yeah, no, I see some, Sabina, what, what do you see? I see uh, some
0: dolls and animals and Definitely. a toilet. <laughs> so some salt and pepper shakers or what that appears to to me to be. The space is like almost like an alley. Um, just going straight down. It's, we have a lot of chairs.
2: A lot of, um, a lot of decorative art. I think you know, as much as we have great national treasures like the Federal Hall Railing, we have just as many of these kind of, well, I guess we could call historical relics. We don't want to go overboard with our collecting. You know, any museum has to not only save and preserve for posterity, we've been around for 200 years, we have a vast, vast holdings but we have to make sure that those things are around for 200 more. And so you really have to think about the stewardship and the care long-term for stuff. And so we're very selective about what we take. And so we try and be on point with our collecting, especially in regards to the 20th and 21st centuries. And so we're really looking for the stories that 200 years from now historians are going to be interested in you know like for instance you know the reemergence of the women's rights movement and a lot of the civic activism that's going on we're really looking to kind of capture those stories and the experiences of, of new yorkers
1: so is that like curatorial aspect what makes you guys a collection and not a bunch of academic hoarders?
2: I think it's the idealism that drives us. You know, we're certainly not out to be hoarders, but we certainly are out to kind of capture this, the moments of our time. And, you know, what are those objects? And it's a great question. You know, we, we don't, we can't predict the future, but we certainly hope that we've done right in the moment to capture what will be of interest in the future.
0: I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your role here and what material culture is. Yeah.
2: As I said, I'm the associate curator of material culture. and I actually probably have the luckiest job in the museum in that uh, my primary care in terms of the collection's growth and development is generally the toy collection and the military collection. <laughs> so uh, those are two things I'm very, very passionate about. But material culture is really kind of looking at objects and trying to kind of unravel their social context and history. And what did they mean to people in the past? How were they used? What did that say about the activities of men, women, and children Um, by looking at how they used things, what materials were being used, uh, how things were produced? You know, the great story of American history has largely been that American history is written and understood by documents, written pieces of evidence. And so adding this sort of saying, ascribing that sort of power to an object. is a relatively new field. It really kind of emerges in the 1930s and 40s, and it, and it continues to grow today.
1: What are some of the powerful objects in here that you might want to point out to somebody? Well, I think
2: if, if someone was coming, you know, f- fresh to this collection, certainly, you know, the Federal Hall railing, but behind us is this sort of strange uh, cylinder that looked with a hand crank on it. This is a really... Uh, problematic and disturbing object, but essential to really understanding New York uh, and the complexities of that it was facing during the Civil War. And you're really looking at the, this is the last known surviving draft wheel. New York was a, has always been a city of immigrants, and as the city was uh, faced with uh, sending more and more uh, men to fight the Civil War... The Irish and Italian populations were increasingly in competition with uh, free blacks here in the city for the low-paying wage jobs. And if you had a certain amount of wealth and income, you could actually buy yourself out of the draft. You didn't have to go, and and people were in an uproar. They were like, that's absolutely unfair. Why should we go and fight for a war that's not going to, to benefit us in the long run? It erupted in what's known as the New York City Draft Riots of 1863. It's the bloodiest... Day in New York City. For three days, they ran amok lynching men, hurting children, breaking windows. Before it was kind of all calmed down, they actually had to send regiments from Gettysburg up into the city to quell the riots. But this draft wheel, essentially the event, the kind of this lottery that kind of kicked off the riot, this one survives. But when they opened it up, it still had all the names of the potential draftees inside
1: well so is that i really like to visit to the new york historical valuable society objects? i told or i just nerded out the entire time stories really that really are
2: discoverable later in the way that like a manuscript couldn't do i i think so because i think we're we're biased to the interests uh, not only of our own research but biased to the interests of our time there is so much work to be done. There's so many mysteries, so many stories that haven't been told. And it's certainly my hope that people will return to, these, to some of our classic chestnuts like the draft wheel, and they'll see new things. See that someone hasn't asked the right question of it to unravel you know, its full mystery. And so I think of it as, as a repository. We're, you know, we're banking on you know, an inquiry in the future that citizens will want to come and, and return to these objects with new questions, while also being proud of a certain heritage and past. I don't think we proceed from any uh, notion that we understand it all. I think that that's far too arrogant. Um, I think we really think of ourselves as stewards and doing our best to lay a groundwork so that a future researcher, scholar, patron might be able to open some type of door.
0: Do you think that that's a reason that people visit museums and take their kids
1: what, one of the things that a museum does is that it makes the past real. I think it's a lot harder to understand that if we all we have is, um, I don't know, a textbook. a textbook. Yeah. yeah.
0: What is being neutral as an archivist? So is it letting the objects come to you and then just making the archive? Or is it seeking out actively objects of, from marginalized communities at that time so that that can be reflected in the archive? I think it's
1: less about trying to control a narrative than about sort of seeing what is happening and then trying to, I don't know, take in things that tell the truth of reality as it actually is.
0: I think, but in displaying objects, they are telling stories. But you're right, there's no, like, they don't have an angle on anything.
1: But I think one of the things that was most fascinating to me is that you can have an object that you think has some sort of historical significance but you may not realize the historical significance at the time and it's something that somebody else might read into it or discover later on like if we think about the draft wheel at the time whoever decided to save it probably thought that it Was important because of what it had to do with the Civil War and what it had to do with the bloody riots that happened because of the drafting. But if we think about it now, it fits into a bunch of larger histories. You know, it has to. It fits into the history of slavery in the United States. It fits into the history of I don't know the American military just like a lot of things about our country in general like it tells stories that
0: are part of much bigger stories it's like the objects are continuing to tell the stories even more importantly than the people and connecting us to our past because the objects will always be around but stories don't always last and people definitely don't always last but I think there's something to be said for the fact that you can
1: have an object that will outlive you, even though it won't live forever, but it will
0: embody something for a long time. Exactly. So Anna had the incredible idea of adding a visual component to our podcast. So we have an Instagram. It is um, at sigtransitgloriapod. And you can follow us like if you want. If you want. You don't have to. But like, if you want to, like, we're there. Yeah, you you can do it. And a big thanks to Mike Thornton and Mary Beth at the New York Historical Society. Our theme song is New York Minute Prayer by Shilpa Ray. And this episode
1: was produced by me. Thanks for listening. Good night.